Well, good morning, everyone. We're going to start this morning in Matthew 22. Next weekend, um, Lord willing, we'll be in Pennsylvania um, at the other, or maybe another, Gerald Martin's congregation, uh, Delmar, Delmar's father's uh, home church. And they assigned me um, three sermons for next weekend on Christian virtues, and they gave me three virtues per sermon, um, so I hope everybody took advantage of the facilities between um, Sunday school and the message, you might be here a while. Um, it's been good for me to have to dig in on these subjects, but it has made me think they probably should all be nine sermons instead of three sermons. The three I'm going to talk about this morning um, are from the first message they assigned. Love, compassion, and contentment. And uh, these were assigned over two years ago. Um, and uh, I was not looking at the Sunday school lesson when I decided I was going to preach this one here this morning. So we're going to start by thinking about love. So here in Matthew 22, we're going to read from, well, we'll start at verse 34, Matthew 22:34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. When we think about love, we probably start by thinking about how we love those around us. But we're going to start where Jesus did and consider loving God. So let's turn to Revelation 2. And look at a warning we have here in Revelation 2 in the letter to the church of Ephesus. In Revelation 2, starting at verse 1. To the angel at the, of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. I didn't look back to see when it was. Sometime in the past I preached from this passage here, the idea of our first love. And as I was reading this passage again and thinking about the glowing endorsement we have in verses 2 and 3, and then just the, the shattering effect of verse 4. I'll just remind here that um, the idea of uh, first love here is not first in a timeline like you loved me first and moved to something else, but it's the primary love, the chief love. That's more the idea of the wording there for first love. So it's not so much about timeline, it's about the depth and the, the reality of it. The chief love, the thing that you love above all else. So this is not a condemnation that you've 
moved on from loving something you once did, though there is an aspect of that, it's you've stopped holding dear what is the dearest. This isn't a church being told, you know, you have a lot going for you, but here's a little something wrong. This is, this is a devastating thing to hear. You have left loving me above all else. And then God tells them, I have this against you. Do you want God to have something against you? We don't like it when people have something against us. We really don't want God to have something against us. And yet, have we ever really stopped, quieted all the other noise in our lives and asked ourselves truly and honestly, do I want God to have something against me? And, well, does he have something against me? What is my chief love? And it's, I don't know if scary is the, the right word, but Revelation 2 here, there, there's just so much that the church at Ephesus was doing well, but God had something against them. They had left their, their primary love, their chief love. And then in Matthew 22, Jesus says, the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all you've got. So this first and greatest, I guess maybe we have a timeline. We have both of the versions of first love, um, timeline and uh, magnitude. Um, it comes before and above all else. Everything flows from it. Everything is affected by it. And so the question for us to consider this morning is, what is your first love? Is there anything in your life that affects everything else about your life? It ought to be God, our love for him, our commitment to him. There should be nothing in our life that is untouched by that. There should be no decision we make that in some way isn't influenced by that love. So what is your first love? And... As I think about that, I think about, you know, people are passionate about a lot of things, and so you might look at someone and say they're passionate about this or that, and so maybe that's their first love, um, you know, their favorite sport, favorite hobby, whatever, you know. Uh, his, maybe his first love is fishing or her first love is whatever. That's not really, that would rarely be right um, because I've met some people who were pretty, uh, well, if we use fishing, we're pretty into fishing. Um, but there were parts of their lives that were not affected by um, fish and lures and sinkers and hooks. There, you know, there were parts of their lives that weren't touched by that. Um, I worked with one fellow who I would say too much of his life was touched by it, but not all of his life was. So no, he was passionate about it, but I wouldn't have said that was his first love. A person's first love affects everything they do, they say, they think. It, it, it permeates your life, it gets in there, it soaks into your life to the point that nothing is unaffected by it. That's what we're talking about when we talk about a first love. Is God your first love or not? I'm realizing I am going to have to skip a lot of things I put in my notes. We can't help but seek what we love. You just can't help it. If you truly love something, you can't stop yourself from seeking it. You can maybe hold yourself back a little bit and occasionally, but it's work. And at the end of the day, the thing you love, you are going to move toward. You're going to pursue it. You're going to try to grab it. You're going to try to have more of it. You can't help but get a little bitter or a little annoyed or a little maybe even hopeless if, if you can't get that thing that you love so much. Love, well, pursuit is 
the mark of true love. That's where we see David writing things like, one thing I One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. That's in Psalm 27, or in Psalm 63, he says, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. That's the pursuit of true love. When he composed those songs, he was consumed with love for God and desire for God, and that love compelled him. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about the love of Christ constrains us, and the word, the Greek word used there for constrain, uh, you'll find compels, as I think it's the New King James translates it, controls, the English Standard translates it. Um, it has the idea of of a moving force. It's a force that is it's making you either go somewhere you don't want to go. Well. You maybe not don't want to go, but it, it's making you go somewhere or it's keeping you back from something. It is a moving force. That is um, how Paul describes the love of Christ. It constrains us, it compels us, it controls us, it moves us. So Paul says that the love of Christ may be, maybe we could say it's urging, it's forcing us into action. We just can't help but pursue what has captured our heart. That's the love of God. Love compels, controls, constrains us. Love pursues. Love has to act because love in word only isn't true love. True love always produces action. 1 John 3. um, I want to say 8, but that doesn't sound right. My little children, let us love. Let us love not in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Something like that. True love. So, a question for us is, what is our true love? And probably for most of us, we would say, at least it was God. But my challenge for you is not, was God your first love, your chief love, but is God your chief love? The first indicator that we've lost passion for God, that he's no longer our our primary love, the first indicators of that aren't necessarily that we're going after false teaching or we're falling into immorality or we're just outright um, sliding away. I read Revelation 2 and see it sure looked like they were, were serving Christ, enduring hardship with some measure of faithfulness, and the observers looking on would have said, Look at that church. They were toiling. They were patiently enduring adversity, we read there. But they they didn't have that burning desire for God. They were no longer earnestly seeking him. The love of Christ no longer compelled, constrained, controlled them. And if Jesus is not what we love the most, our energies, our resources will get spent elsewhere. No matter how well I do at keeping some of the some of the basics, I might even look faithful on the outside. But what is truly my drive? Am I living for Him out of a heart for Him? What are you really seeking? Let's turn to Luke 10. Let's think a little bit about love and the second of the commandments, Jesus talks about and love for others Luke 10 and we'll start reading at verse 25 Luke 10 25 and behold a certain lawyer stood up and tested him saying teacher what shall I do to inherit eternal life and he said to him what is written in the law What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, 
A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounding him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. So we have there in verse 29, the man wanting to justify himself. And then this is all in the, what we call the good Samaritan. Um, The fact that he was a Samaritan carried more weight for those who would have heard it initially than it does for us, I guess, um, because of the friction between the Samaritans and um, the Israelites. But really what it comes down to is the loving person. It's more about the loving person than whether he was a Samaritan or whether he was good. And I wondered, well, why did the priest and Levite not respond to the needs of the neighbor they met? They should have been the best positioned to know this is how I love, right? Well, it's simple. They had something else they needed to do. Think about the priest. He had great responsibility. And if that injured man died while the priest was working with him or trying to help him, that priest would be unfit for service until he was cleansed. So obviously he couldn't help, right? He had important things to do. And I see a big warning for me here. They were distracted by their own interests. And really, it seems like the attitude that was there was, well, this isn't my job. I have my job. I'm a priest. Here are the things I'm supposed to do. I need to go do them. I have my job. And that's not my job. Or the Levite. And whether really it was them being distracted by their own interests, whether it was them being callous, or whether it was them just saying, well, that it, it's not on me, it's not my job to do that. Well, I think I've said before, not my job is one of my least favorite phrases. Um, that just points to a rottenness, to a rottenness in your core that's going to get pretty, pretty nasty in your life if you don't deal with it. That's an attitude that that really doesn't have the place in the, in the life of a servant. Not my job. And I'm not saying that you can do everything and that you have no limits. That, that's not what I'm saying. But if you've got an attitude, if that, if that is a big part of your vocabulary, I think you're going to have some struggles. Not my job. It wasn't the Samaritan's job. It wasn't even within the bounds of acceptable culturally for him to stop and deal with this person. If that man hadn't been half dead, he might have said, oh, I don't want a Samaritan touching me. That's the kind of relationship they had. It wasn't his job. But he was moved in loving compassion. I don't remember where I ran across this. It was scratched in one of my notebooks. A simple encapsulation of love is this, giving of myself before giving to myself. Giving of myself before giving to myself. And this can lead us straight into compassion. As we think about loving others, it's hard to separate the virtue of compassion, and we even have it there in the account. He was moved by compassion. I won't turn there. The shortest verse in the Bible 
Somebody, um, somebody under 14, tell me what the shortest verse in the Bible is. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. It's John 11.35. But for all of its simplicity, that's a deep verse. Jesus wept after speaking with Lazarus's grieving sisters, Martha and Mary. And, he, and from the context there, we see he, he sees all the mourners, he talks to the sisters, and in some ways that seems natural enough that Jesus wept, except, well, Jesus had come to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew that in a few short minutes all this weeping that was going on was going to turn into astonishment and joy and probably still some tears, but they would have been different kind of tears at that point. Um, he would have known that worship was going to come out of this. And so... On one hand, I could think, well, Jesus, he would be, wouldn't he have come there confident, joyful, and calm? You know, here, here's all this, the storm of sorrow and, and weeping going on, and he would have been the calm coming in. But no, uh, verse 33 says he was greatly troubled. And then in verse 35, it says he wept. Why? And there are, I've, I've never actually put it together, but I have part of a sermon put together on why did Jesus weep. Um, there are a number of things we could look at, but one of the reasons that is pretty obvious is simply the deep compassion that Jesus felt for those who were suffering. He saw suffering, and he had compassion. It's true that Jesus let Lazarus die. He delayed his coming, Um in Matthew 8, we see Jesus speaking life from a distance, speaking healing from a distance. He did for the centurion's servant there in Matthew 8. He didn't do that in this case. His reasons were, they were good, they were merciful, there was glory in his reasons, but Jesus didn't take lightly the suffering that it caused. He knew that he was doing the right thing, but that didn't make it easy. I think about that when I think of his prayer in the garden. He knew that he was doing the right thing, but that didn't make it easy. In Lamentations 3, uh, 32 and 33, Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies, for he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. He allows hard things. He allows painful things. But he shows compassion and I was trying to dig into the Hebrew psalm of he does not afflict willingly, what all that means. Um, seems to have the idea of it's not, it's work for him to do it. Um, even though God chooses ultimately what will bring his father the most glory, um, and in this case, in Lazarus's case, there was some affliction and grief that came along with that. He took no joy in that grief. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus is sympathetic. That's a big part of compassion. God is full of compassion. Psalm 103:13 As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. And that idea of pity is not the oh you poor little thing, um, but the idea of compassion. There are a couple different avenues we could take. We could we could walk down a couple different streets as we think about compassion. I thought a lot about compassion for those who are lost and focusing on on the ultimate need of people, the need of a savior, the need of redemption and a right relationship with God, a need of freedom from sin. But we can also think about compassion on the practical or physical needs around us. In many ways, the problems we have with compassion or with a lack of compassion, though, affect both. 
if we are not compassionate, we are not going to be reaching out to people in their need of a Savior, nor will we be reaching out to them in their need of food or transportation or a warm place to sleep. Let's, let's think about apathy for a bit. So apathy is kind of like indifference, but I would say it's even more deplorable. Um, indifference is more like knowing something, but not caring about it. So that would be the priest and the Levite. I would say they were indifferent. They saw there was something that needed some attention. They saw the man, but they moved on. They were indifferent. Apathy, I would, I would say, is, is maybe that next step a little bit farther where they don't even care enough to notice that there's a man bleeding to death. Some of us just don't care that much about people. And I would say especially some of us just don't care that much about lost people. If we think about the ultimate need. We wouldn't ever say it. We wouldn't ever say, well, I just don't care about people. But what do our priorities and lives reveal about our true care for people? Do we take time in our busy schedules to interact with and engage those who don't know Christ? Do we have um, non-Christian friends or connections? And I'm not talking about, you know, go out and develop deep relationships with unredeemed people. But do you have any friends or, or acquaintances or contacts that you relate to that don't know God? Lost people are a low priority. And too often in my life, people are a low priority. I was challenged when I read a question I had written in one of my notebooks a while back of, when was the last time you intentionally got together with someone who does not know Christ? When was the last time I intentionally struck up a conversation for the purpose of being able to express some measure of God's love and truth to someone? And at the root of me not doing that is a lack of compassion. Because if I truly have compassion for that eternal soul and that person living right here, right now, bound by sin, separated from God, if I have any compassion in my heart, is that not going to move me to do something? And I'm not talking necessarily about, um, you know, Making your pitch. Um, I remember a number of years ago talking with some LDS fellows here in town, and and I asked them to give me their pitch. Um, and uh, so the kind of leader of the there were three fellows there, the leader of them, he gave his pitch. He spent maybe four minutes just walking through his steps of why I needed to care about things that he thought I needed to care about. Um, that's that's not what I'm saying you need to go out. I'm not saying you need to build a, a PowerPoint slide deck that you can pull up on your phone and say, right, you know, give me three minutes of your time and I'm going to walk you through why you need God. I'm, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying there's never a time for some pretty intentional stuff like that. But when was the last time I just intentionally tried to get spiritual with someone that I knew had a need, a spiritual need? When was the last time I tried to just connect with someone that I knew needed connection so that God could possibly open an avenue of spiritual connection? We won't read Matthew 5 for the sake of time, but that's where Jesus talks about in uh, 43, starting at verse 43, he talks about um, 
you have heard it was said, and that's the section on starting verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, you need to love your enemies, you bless people who curse you, you do good to people who hate you, you pray for people who um, spitefully use you and persecute you. We can fall into the trap of thinking, of believing that as long as we don't hate people or dislike people, we're okay. And that, I would say, is where we start to develop that, that mindset or that license to just not notice or care about people. Because I don't hate anybody, but I'm also just not paying attention. That's not compassion. That's not love. Have I walked past anybody bleeding along the road lately, figuratively? Would I have noticed if I had? If you look at your life and give an honest evaluation of what you care about, you'll find there are things you care about. If you struggle to know what you care about, you can ask yourself and ask a couple people close to you their uh, opinion. What gives you pleasure? What do you do with your time? What disappoints you? You're going to learn a little bit about what you care about. What brings you pleasure? What do you do with your time? And what disappoints you? You're going to find some things in your life that don't deserve the care that you give them. And the problem with handing... I can't remember how that line went. I remember a number of years ago reading a line about people who hand out cares like, like ice cream at a picnic... Um, is they don't have any cares left when they get to something worth caring about. Um, if you fill your life with caring about a stuff that doesn't really matter that much, uh, you're just going to crowd out the important things. And what's more important than the people around you? What are the things that self and Satan are using to crowd out a care for the people around you? need to move on to contentment but I'll just say this do you even care about people we're talking about love and compassion right now do you even care about people and if you think you do but want to challenge yourself a little deeper to see if maybe you're maybe you're a little self uh, have a little self delusion going on could you be convicted as in convicted in a, in a court of caring about people? In other words, is there any evidence of it that you can find in your life that you actually care about people? Do I have any evidence in my life that I care about people? Because it's one thing for me to say, oh, yes, I care about people. I think about Daniel and how there was no trouble getting the evidence to prove that he was dedicated to God above the king. They, they wouldn't have needed any sort of trial. It was right there. It was obvious. The evidence was... Uh, you just couldn't miss it. Is there evidence in my life that I love God more than anything else? And is there evidence in my life that I care about people? In general, when we lack compassion for people, it's not because we don't like them or hold them as annoying or bothersome as much as maybe they just aren't even worth being on our radar. Do you have compassion? Do you model your life like Jesus in that way to be sympathetic and compassionate? And I will, I will just go ahead and touch on this. Sometimes it's easy. Okay, so if it's not the apathy problem and just, well, I'm not paying enough attention to even care. Sometimes it's hard to have compassion for people because, well, they just seem like the kind of people who look down, see they have two feet and shoot one of them. They just, they just they just go around making horrible decisions and and just 
Come on, people. They made their bed. They can just lie in it. It's hard to have compassion and love for those who seem unlovely and we don't. Sometimes it's hard to look at people making horrible decisions and, and throwing their lives away and muster up anything other than that, that feeling of, well, they brought it on themselves. We see a life full of heartache and hardship and frankly, we just don't want to have much to do with them. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't look down at humankind and say, they made their bed, now they can lie in it. What right do I have to say that? God the Father didn't look down and say, no way is my only begotten son going to go down there and suffer unimaginable pain and anguish for a bunch of people who chose to mess up. But is that the attitude I have in my life? When I see somebody who is in a rough spot of their own making, do I have a Romans 5.8 heart? Or do I have, well, I don't have a verse for this one, or do I just have a heart of, they messed up, it's their problem? See, we forget about our mess-ups. We forget about our time before God's redemption. God reached out to us when we were the ones who messed up. Pray that God would cause your love for others to abound. In 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. That's a prayer you can pray. It's a prayer you need to pray. That's a prayer I need to pray. Love to all men is a work of God in our hearts. It's not natural to us. It's a gift of God. But he will give it if we ask. think about contentment for a little bit. I was thinking about it in Sunday school class um, with what Caleb shared in the devotional and then uh, with the lesson we had. In both passages we had someone saying, but what about them? What about that person? And it was both the negative uses of, of that. Um, it wasn't the, well, I guess you could argue that the timelines of who got paid first in the Sunday school lesson made it so you couldn't have done this, but um, the people who got paid a day's wage for an hour of work didn't say, but hey, what about those guys? Aren't you going to give them 12 days wages? Because you gave, you gave me you know, that for an hour, so you need to go help that guy. I guess that's the compassionate kind of um looking and saying, well, that guy that guy needs better than this. We never do that, do we? We pretty much only look around to find and say, well, what about that person when we're trying to lift ourselves up, not when we're trying to lift them up? As I've studied and considered contentment, I've, I've been stretched on this one. I feel like when when someone says we want a, a topic or a sermon on contentment, what we want or what we feel we need is a set of tips on practical contentment. Um, you don't need the Lexus, the Toyota will do fine. You don't need the newest truck with a thousand foot-pounds of torque to haul you and your lunchbox to work at the office or, or whatever. You know, you that's those are the kind of things we need to, to hear about contentment. Be content with what you have. What you have is good enough. Um, but really, if all I do, and I would say both those things are generally true, um, those are some things you can just learn to be content. Um, but really, if all I do is set up some boundaries of what is too indulgent,
I'm not going to find contentment. Nor am I going to find what God wants me to find. So in Ephesians 5, we read that covetousness should not even be named among the church. And covetousness is hard to point out definitively because it's it goes to our motives and our inner hidden desires. And so I can't point at you and say, well, you're covetous because, well, that's in there, right? Indulgence, though, is not so subjective. It's a little more obvious. You can point to my life and say, well, that looks pretty indulgent and have a lot more clear uh, path. We as a culture are very much an indulgent people. And unfortunately, that's not just we as in the USA. Um, we as Christians and Anabaptists in the Western world are pretty indulgent people. Indulgence by nature fertilizes covetousness. Because if I live a life of indulgence, if I indulge myself, then I'm just, I'm pouring miracle grow in there for covetousness to go, well, now I want that, and now I want that, and now I want that. The indulgent lifestyle lends itself to lust. We are slow to deny self. We're quick to indulge the things that bring us comfort, pleasure, amusement. And as we live our lives like this, what strength do we expect to have built to face a temptation to covetousness, a temptation to lust? If I'm used to indulging in the things that bring me pleasure, and, I, and I'm not saying... No, I'll say it in the positive. Even acceptable things. We can indulge in things that are not bad things. But I'm saying if I'm if I'm just used to indulging in whatever brings me pleasure, why do I think I'll be able to keep from indulging in the negative or the sinful things? If I don't practice self-denial in a real way, in a regular way, what chance do I have of not giving in when the sinful desire comes across the radar. We've heard probably dozens of, either heard or read dozens of sermons and devotionals and articles um, decrying how the, the unregenerate, the unredeemed, they live their life with the, with the mindset of, if it feels good, do it. That's how the, the people of the world approach life. If it feels good, do it. The scary observation of Christianity today and even my own tendency is settling into if it feels good and it isn't outright sin and it isn't against our church agreement and I can afford it, I'm going to do it. And this leads us to a view of self-denial as something that Maybe we classify like martyrdom. It's something we will do if we're called to it, but it's not a practice for daily life. The rich young ruler went to Jesus and pretty much any time that passage is in a Sunday school class or in a sermon or in a devotional, we make sure to point out that Jesus isn't telling everyone give away everything you have. That's not what that passage is about. And I agree, that passage isn't a doctrine of you need to give away everything you have to be a Christian. But we pretty quickly jump to making sure everybody knows that, hey, you don't have to give everything away anytime we read that passage. He isn't telling everyone they need to, they need to be willing to. Just like God doesn't call everyone to be a martyr, they just need to be willing to be a martyr, right? I would say both those are true. But the problem is when Satan and selfishness start to whisper in your ear, well, God's not calling you to deny yourself this pleasure. Just be willing to. That's not how self-denial works. Jesus didn't say, be willing to deny yourself and follow me. 
He said, deny yourself, follow me. There are all sorts of questions we could have about what's an appropriate level of comfort, what's expected in self-denial. We're not getting into that this morning. Though if those are the first questions that come to my mind, I think uh, I have an indicator that I've got some problems. Um, If somebody tells me I need to consider Jesus' command to deny myself, and I go, well, yes, but what's an appropriate level of comfort? I think I've probably got a comfort mindset that runs a little too deep. Um, I'll just say this. I don't think the questions of true self-denial are going to be, what's the minimum level of sacrifice, Jesus? Because isn't that what I'm doing when I say, well, but what's an acceptable level of comfort? What I'm saying is, Jesus, what's, what's the minimum level I need to do and still be considered denying myself? That's not what he's talking about. And the problem is we, we, not the problem, a problem. We live in this culture of indulgence. It's all around us. Our resting state is one of seeking comfort. Comfort is declined, by the way. Ask anybody trying to, say, build muscle. Comfort is declined. Until we can find a way to have our drive in life be that unstoppable pushing forward to the kingdom of God, we're going to face struggles, we're going to face problems, we're going to face questions, we're going to wonder, well, is that too indulgent? We're going to wonder, am I actually denying myself to follow Christ? In our humanity, we want to know, well, what's what's the minimum level of self-denial required? Then we're back to, is God the biggest force in my life? Is my love of God the thing that touches everything I do? Paul told Timothy, Um, He had to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Soldiers endure hardship for a purpose. So I'm not up here preaching asceticism. You know, if you've... uh, uh, Was it Mother Teresa that there was a a new facility being donated to some charitable work she was a part of, and uh, she made them pull the carpets out and take the water boiler out because, well, you know, this is just too, you know, uh, it's not holy enough that we have hot water to, to wash ourselves in the dishes and whatever. You know, We need to make do with cold water. Well, it was there. Um, I'm not saying that we just, you know, if you're, you know, that suffering is holiness or that um, thriftiness is, is just how we, uh, is somehow making you closer to God. I'm talking about what's actually important to us. What is our base state? What is our core Soldiers endure hardship for a reason, for a purpose. It's not just, well, go out and endure hardship so that you can have some hardship. Um, There's a greater objective to it. But there are times that they do some training where they're enduring some hardship so that they can be ready for the hardship they know is coming. That's a mindset I don't have enough of when I think about self-denial. Self-denial is not just... There are times I need to be denying myself in part because I know that it's going to help build up in me what I need to deny myself in the next thing. Jesus said, if you would be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And can we, like Peter, say, we have left all and followed you? I'll close with this about contentment. So this has been more about denying myself and not being indulgent. That's not the key to contentment either. That's no more the key to contentment than saying, well, he makes do with a vehicle like this, so I can make do with a vehicle like that. That That's not quite how it works. The secret to Christian peace and contentment is not a secret. It's not some knowledge that's hidden away and it's only revealed to those who uh, achieve some higher degree of enlightenment. It's a secret hidden in plain sight through the scripture. It's available to anyone willing to believe it. I'm going to read a couple verses from Luke 12. Jesus speaking in Luke 12:22. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, nor about the body, what you'll put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, 
which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Skipping down to verse um, 28. If God so clothes the grass, which today in the field is in the field, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not seek what you would eat or what you would drink, nor have an anxious mind, for all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. The secret to contentment is very simple. It doesn't require some heroic act of piety. It doesn't require some heroic act of uh, self-denial. It requires a more childlike response from us. And the simple summing up of it that you'll find in the Bible is in Proverbs 3.5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. If God is your everything, and he is your provider, you can find true contentment. Trusting is simple, but it is by no means easy. Another way to say that would be trusting God is not easy, but it's not complex. Loving and trusting God is the secret to true contentment. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. See, I could develop uh, some sort of a grid up here showing how I could compare what I have to what my neighbor has, and, well, um, I can be happy with a Mazda that has some creaks and rattles because Miss so-and-so across the street, well, she has to walk to work. So obviously I can be content with a car that has some rattles, right? Well, I can rejoice in my wage because Mr. What's-His-Name works at Lowe's and he makes considerably less than me an hour, and so obviously I can be content with my wage. And I'm not saying there's no benefit in counting your blessings. We should be counting our blessings. But we don't rely on, well, I have it better than person X as the foundation of our contentment. And yet too often that's what we turn to. Contentment, a true view of God, a love for God and a trust in God is the only recipe for settling into true contentment. The question I will leave you with is, is God enough? Thank you for your time. God bless you. Can we have a song, please? Mm-hmm.